Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, with Pastor John King. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 15. We're going to go through verses 1 through 15. Verses 1 through 15 of Mark chapter 15. While you're uh, headed that way, uh, just a quick reminder, last week we saw Jesus facing the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish uh, Supreme Court. He was now put on trial for what, out, what turned out to be false charges and false testimony. And the truth would not stop these fanatical religious leaders from proceeding through with their charade, if you will. They would find a way to charge him with a capital crime deserving the death penalty. Now today we're going to follow the conclusion of the Jewish trial and enter into the Roman trial. Remember, it's six parts. It's a three-part Jewish trial and it's a three-part Roman trial. And this is uh, the day we meet Pontius Pilate. And we see how his compromised character made certain Jesus' death would be carried out with the full weight of Roman cruelty and humiliation. So let's read our passage here. Uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 1. Immediately in the morning with the chief priests, they held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus. Remember, they had uh, been meeting in the middle of the night, and now here they are, the first thing in the morning. They bound Jesus, and they led him away, and they delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew, knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd, and so that he should... Uh, rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Heavenly Father, we come before you now. Lord, help us to have humble hearts as we read of this account, as we study the terrible trial, Lord, that you had gone through for, on our behalf. Lord, let us, if nothing else, even just to be reminded of the historical significance of your suffering and your death, let us be also reminded that you did it for us that we were the ones who deserved to be on that cross. We were the ones that were guilty, and yet you took our place. You went as a sinless lamb to the slaughter. And so, Lord, humble our hearts, and, and also, Lord, 
Give us peace in our hearts knowing that the work you did was sufficient for our salvation. We thank you, Lord, for your great sacrifice on our behalf. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. So here we have Jesus facing Pontius Pilate for the first time. Uh, Mark's account of this uh, whole uh, section of Scripture is very brief compared to the other Gospel writers. So we'll be referring quite a bit to some of the other uh, Gospels. But it says here, immediately in the morning. So we know that the previous night after Jesus had stood uh, before the former high priest Annas and then his son-in-law Caiaphas. So there were two parts of the trial. The, the high, current high priest Caiaphas, and that was also the same night that Peter denied Jesus three times. So here we are in the, in the light of the day, and the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. So here they were, kind of trying to put their final stamp of approval. But it was anything but a trial. A trial where the actual judges were bringing their own witnesses and charges. That, that's not a trial. It's not a, you're supposed to go before a judge, and the, the state is supposed to bring the charges to you, not the actual judges bringing charges against the accused. He had no defense counsel, no proper procedures. There was violence against him. Some have called it judicial murder is what took place. But you had the whole council. You know, not all the members were there early in the morning, but here they were today. In one sense, they knew that their late-night trial was illegal. And in another sense, the need that the whole council would agree to a guilty verdict to present to Pilate. Alfred Edersheim wrote, he said, The trial and sentence of Jesus in the palace of Caiaphas would have outraged every principle of Jewish criminal law and procedure. Such cases could only be tried and the capital sentence pronounced in the regular meeting place of the Sanhedrin. They had to do it during the daytime, and if they were going to pronounce a verdict of death, they would have had to wait in a capital crime 24 hours for making that accusation. Even though the council could hold trial and they could deliver a verdict, the Romans were the ones that controlled the actual mechanism of capital punishment. They would never allow the Jews to carry out an execution on their own. Although there were some exceptions. But from the days of Herod the Great and even before that, and now under this Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate, capital punishment was under the control and sanction of Caesar's representative. Chuck Swindoll wrote, as dawn approached, the chief priests and scribes found their charges. Blasphemy, an affront to the Jews, and sedition, treason against Rome. In an outrageous inversion of justice, guilty men put on their robes of religion and then sat in judgment over the Son of God. Everything was turned upside down in this case. And it says they bound and, and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Here we meet Pontius Pilate. He was the procurator of Judah. He was directly responsible to the Roman emperor for the administrative and financial management of the country. This was a, you know, and it had this, uh, Israel was 
being controlled by Rome for a long time, had been a long time. They, they didn't really control their own country. The Romans had conquered them. And the Romans would typically, when they conquered a nation, they would allow the people to practice their religion and everything as long as they paid their taxes. And they would control certain things. Now Pontius Pilate, to have this position, he would have had to work himself through the political and the military ranks. You know, he was a career man. He also had some very uh, interesting connections, which we won't go into today. He had some interesting political connections. And he held office for 10 years. However, the Jews despised this man, Pilate, and the feeling was mutual. Pilate despised the Jews. In particular, he totally disliked their intense practice of their religion. Two things happened in the history between the, uh, Pilate and the Jews that caused serious problems and, and caused this bitter hatred to go on forever. First, in his state visits to Jerusalem, he would ride into the city with a Roman standard. You know, the eagle sitting on top of the pole. If you ever see the uh, old Roman movies where they have the standard, their standard barriers. Or even if you see in World War II, the Germans, you know, the Third Reich, they had their standards. And all the previous governors, they wouldn't do that. They didn't want to insult the Jews because the Jews were, you know, vehemently against idolatry, any form of idolatry. And he knew that, but he just did it to, to kind of stir them up and to jab them and to get, you know, to get on their case. And they hated that. Another thing that Pilate did was he took money from uh, the temple treasury to finance a water supply project. You know, the, the Romans had that much control over the nation Israel. They could reach into their, their bank account. And he took money out of the temple. And the Jews never forgot or ever forgave this act. They bitterly opposed Pilate all through his reign and treated him with equal contempt, or he treated them with equal contempt. But on several occasions, Jewish leaders threatened to exercise their right to report Pilate to the emperor. So you see a problem right away with Pilate. You have an unjust trial, but you have a corrupt politician. And it disturbed him. Now back to our passage. They bound Jesus, they led him away, and they delivered him to Pilate. Having completed the religious part, the religious aspect, now they had to put all of their emphasis purely on political concerns. So they delivered him to Pilate. Why did they do that? Again, in order for Jesus to be found guilty of a capital crime worthy of death. But they knew that the Roman government did not consider blasphemy against their religion to be a capital crime at all. So they had to present Jesus as a revolutionary, one who was guilty of treason. Now the official residence normally for the governor would have been up in uh, Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. But oftentimes, especially during the feast, they would come down to Jerusalem during the, uh, you know, there was, there was likely to be a lot of action going on when you had a couple of million Jews crowding into this uh, city of Jerusalem. And so oftentimes they came down during the great feasts. When we look at this story, we kind of need to look at John and, and see because it's not as brief as Mark presents it. There's some key background information it says in John 18, verses 29 through 32, 
that when they came, they sent uh, Jesus to Pilate. He was bound. And then Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and they said, well, if he were not an evildoer, why would we have delivered him up to you? You can tell he got a great relationship right there. And then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. And therefore the Jews said to him, oh, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled when he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. What accusation, he asked. The Romans would only deal with definitive accusations. They weren't going to take, you know, they weren't going to get into this, to this uh, issue of, of blasphemy, sort of a subjective issue. They wanted to have the real facts. Just give us the facts. And these, these leaders, their wishy-washy reply, you know, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you, re- reveals their attempt to evade the truth because it was a very vague charge that they were bringing. Notice also, you take him and judge him. Uh, Pilate was on to them from the start. Pilate may have been a corrupt politician and had plenty of problems, but he wasn't a dummy. He was a very shrewd man. And he was reluctant to proceed. He didn't like the Jewish leaders and he didn't want to please them. And he could tell he was being manipulated. But remember, Pilate was the one who had to approve on the night before to send the troops to arrest Jesus. So he was aware of something going on. He must have been in great conflict with himself. When you read Matthew 27, 19, it says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, this was, uh, again, a little bit farther than we are right now, but when you read Matthew's account, there's a, there's a lot going on internally, and the Bible reveals some of it to us. And he was sitting on the judgment seat, and then his wife came out and spoke to him. You may remember this story of Matthew 27:19, And she said, having nothing to do with this just man, Jesus, have nothing to do with him, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now, even though Pilate wouldn't heed her warning, this sheds much more light on the fact that Jesus was purely innocent. And he said, judge him according to your law. And if the Jews were given permission to execute Jesus according to their law, they would have to have stoned him to death. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So now they're wanting to abide by the law, you know. They, play the, they ride the fence. They can't even follow their own rules, yet they want Pilate to carry out the sentence. But remember, God is in control. His manner of death, Jesus' manner of death, was a, a, a matter left up to God. It was a fresh reminder that we, when we read the Bible, despite all of the drama and the intrigue, God is fully in control, and Jesus would go to the cross. David Guzik writes, he says, their demand that, the Jesus, that Jesus die a Roman death of crucifixion would fulfill Jesus' own world, words when he said, I, if I be lifted up in John 3.14, if the Jews had put Jesus to death, he would have been stoned to death, and this prophecy about the manner of his death would not have been fulfilled. All of God's prophecy has been or will be fulfilled. There are, there's no mistakes. 
Back to our text. Pilate asked him, you know, and all this kind of background stuff that we filled you in on, Pilate, Pilate asked him, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, he said, it is as you say. Pilate's already heard the charges, he knows what's, he knows what's going on, he knows their opposition. But he uses this famous phrase, it is as you say, sulegias, uh, sulegias in the Greek. What he's saying is unmistakably, what you are saying is true, but it is not a kingdom like you, Pilate, are thinking. What does he mean? Well, how do Jesus actually gives a great explanation back in John chapter 18, verses 36 through 38. John 18, 36 through 38. Jesus answered, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am king, for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him those famous lines, what is truth? Kind of a strange reply to Jesus. You see it in the movies. And when he said this, he went out to the Jews and he went and told them, he says, I find no fault in this man. You see, Jesus wants to reign in our hearts and lives. In the realm of the spiritual and the eternal, yes, he is he helps us in our physical needs. He heals our, you know, he does a lot of things for us. He provides for our needs. But he really wants to reign and he really wants to rule mostly in our hearts and through our lives in a spiritual way. Not in the realm of physical and temporal, temporal because that's coming. That's when the resurrection comes and we get our new bodies. But now he's set a time limit on all of us. We all have a time limit. <laughs> we all have an expiration date. But he will reign and rule in our hearts if you let him. Now some folks have wondered, um, Chuck Swindoll brings this up, some folks have wondered, why didn't Jesus simply say, yes, yes, Pilate, I am the king of the Jews. I am. Why didn't he just straight up answer him that way? And, and Swindoll offers a couple of answers that I think are good reasons that Jesus didn't. Uh, to say yes would have put him on the same level as the previous false messiahs who stood before Pilate. And the procurator would have disposed of the case without an opportunity to know Jesus as Savior. Even in this man, Pontius Pilate, who would go down in history as one of the most you know, evil men ever to live, Jesus wanted a personal relationship with him. He offers that to everybody. To say yes would have played into Pilate's pre-existing notions and prejudices instead of leading him closer to the truth. You know, we hear these words from Jesus and sometimes we go, well, yeah, why, why don't you say that, Jesus? Well, you know what? Sometimes he needs to drill down into our hearts and our minds to get through all the clutter and the misconceptions for us to have a true understanding. It's a walk and it's a process, isn't it? We don't have all the answers right away. We've got way more questions even to this day. Jesus is a king in every sense of the term, but his kingship doesn't rule by the strength of armies. That doesn't make sense to us. His kingship rests on the power of 
truth. The king, or this king, doesn't rise to power through insurrection. This king washes the feet of his subjects. But to say yes would have diverted attention from the crucial, critical question. Who do you say that I am? That's a question that every person has to answer. Who do you say that I am? When it comes to Jesus, and if somebody were to ask you, or you know, maybe the Lord is speaking to you like he did to Peter, you know, uh, who do men say that I am? But who do you say that I am? He wants a personal response. Back to our text again. Sorry. Verse 3, And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. He answered nothing. And again, we know his charges were several. Luke records that he was, uh, they said they found him perverting the nation, they, uh, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Uh, he says he's the king. You know, he's starting to get Herod's, or excuse me, uh, he's starting to get Pilate's attention. But having studied the Gospels, having been through the Gospel of Mark, we all know already that Jesus is absolutely not a revolutionary. That's not his, that's not his thing. That's not what he does. He insisted that you and I pay our taxes. He insisted that they pay their taxes. He never advocated for rebellion or civil disobedience against the Romans. And I know that topic comes up a lot these days. Where do Christians stand where the government's going the direction that it's going? Well, we need to know where Jesus stood before we do anything. And let the Lord lead you and guide you in that. But he, he answered nothing. His, his silence was to fulfill Scripture. He understood that no amount of talking would change the mind of someone willfully resistant to the truth. You ever uh, come to that understanding? That sometimes no amount of talking convince, can convince somebody of the truth? And, and like Jesus, you have to endure this ordeal in your own silence, realizing that that person's not going to, you know, Accept Jesus right there on the spot as you're witnessing to them. That they don't believe what you're saying. At least that's what they say. And so sometimes we have to be silent. We have to know when to be silent. And he also fulfilled scripture, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Verse 4, when Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify you against you. Why is Pilate being so insistent? Well, because he does not believe that Jesus is a political threat. Pilate doesn't like the Jews pushing him around. He's going to resist the idea that they're bringing forth. In verse 5, it says, but Jesus still answered nothing. So Pilate marveled. This is Jesus has been referred to as sort of this majestic silence in the face of unrestrained anger and false accusations. And it had a profound effect on Pilate. Luke 23, 4, it says, so Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Verse 5, but they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. How about us? How, how is, in light of the, 
the kind of the climate that we live in, you know, you know, how does our composure and our calmness give a great witness to the keeping power of Christ? You know, I mean, we all blow it. We all blow it. I, I recently had a, you know, I, I got angry with somebody very dear to me. And it was a very, it was a shock. It was a shock to them. And I had to apologize and repent to that. Because, you know, you blow your witness when you do that. But our composure and our calmness in the midst of all these life's trials, and it's not easy, it is certainly one of the marks of a disciple in Christ. So this concludes actually the first phase of the Roman trial. Nothing really was solved. Pilate's still kind of pushing back against the, the uh, charges. And because Mark is so brief, I have to tell you what Luke said and what happened. In Luke's Gospel, in uh, verses 23, 6 through 12, we would read, if you were to read it, that Pilate tried to deflect the political storm over to this guy Herod Antipas, one of the Herods. Since Jesus from, was from Galilee, that's, you know, Herod would have had jurisdiction over Galilee. So he, Herod happened to be in the city of Jerusalem. And so Pilate's like, you know, sends him over to, to Herod, hoping that Herod will deal with the issue. Um, this is referred to as the second phase of Jesus' Roman trial. And you see it here in the, in the verses. It says, Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had many things, or heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Jesus was silent before Herod as well. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. You know, these guys are everywhere. They're running all over the place. They're going to make sure. And then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him. They arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. Again, the problem's not solved. It was, you know, uh, he's back in front of Pilate a third time. He's back again. And so in verse 6, it says, Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. So now Pilate is going to try another tactic, another political maneuver to try and release Jesus and not be forced to do something that he, he, he knows is wrong. But Pilate has a predicament because at this point in his career, he could not afford another riot. You know, they were watching him. They were keeping their eye on this guy, and he'd been messing up. He'd been angering the, you know, the natives, and the natives were restless. And then Caesar didn't like that. And the Jewish leaders even told Pilate in, in uh, John 19, 12, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar, you see. So he knew exactly what they were threatening. So he thought of another way to escape this predicament. And so following the tradition of the Roman governors to keep the peace by releasing a man from prison during their great celebration. You know, here they are for the Passover. How can we keep the local population kind of under control, keep them happy? We'll give them a goodwill offering. We'll offer to release a convicted prisoner to them, the one that they choose. This demonstrates, of course, Rome's mercy, right? Normally, they would choose someone 
accused of a very minor offense. In verse 7, though, it says, And there was one named Barabbas. Barabbas means son of a father. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a silly word. It's, it's almost like the modern use of, the, of John Doe. You know, it's like, a, it's like an, an anonymous. And it was likely to protect the accused family from retribution. Why? Because he was chained with his fellow rebels. He was a bad guy. He was no minor criminal, Barabbas. His fellow rebels were considered insurrectionists, what we might call today as terrorists. And they had committed murder in the rebellion. So you had capital charges against this guy. And he may have been a member uh, of, of a group called the Sicarii Zealots, who were always coming against Rome and, and trying, to, trying to usurp Rome's power. And so Barabbas had, or, or, uh, we have this guy Barabbas. You know, Jesus is back for a third time. Pilate's going to try this political maneuver. But notice that in verse 8, the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. Now sometimes you hear about this multitude. You've often heard it. You know, it, it does preach pretty well. You'll hear that said that this multitude was the very same crowd that had came and they were saying and shouting, Hosanna, earlier in the week. And that may well be true. But some commentators believe that this particular crowd was assembled by the chief priests. Sort of like paid protesters who come from out of town. Sound familiar? I don't know. And so they began to ask him to do just as he has always done. In other words, they began to, to get on Pilate right away. They're like, hey, you need to release a prisoner. You need to release a prisoner or whatever. And so this gesture of goodwill had now become an entitlement. But in verse 9, Pilate is sort of toying with them. He's, he's doing a little, you know, political. He's, he's exercising his authority. He's a bit of a rascal, Pilate is, actually. He says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Knowing that they don't want that. Pilate knew he was angering the, the leaders who were stirring up the crowd. But one thing Pilate felt sure about was that if he would say, hey, here's Barabbas, this murderer, and here's Jesus, sh surely that they would release the innocent Jesus, right? Surely they wouldn't say, yeah, get that murderer back on the streets. We want him among our families and children. But he was a man of compromise, and he underestimated the evil in the heart of, of men. He underestimated it. He asked the question in verse 10, it says, For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. He knew that they were simply jealous. They were jealous and they were angry and they produced this by witnessing or hearing of the advantage and prosperity. That's what, that's what jealousy is. It's when you, when you become anger uh, or, or envious or jealous over somebody who has something that you want. They, they, they don't like the prosperity or hearing of the advantage that you might have. And so they had envy. One writer put it this way. He said, The governor recognized their motivation for executing Jesus had nothing to do with loyalty to Rome and everything to do with safeguarding their influence and prestige with the people. Unmoved by any option and driven by jealousy and pride, they rejected their own Messiah, the Son of God, because he exposed their hypocrisy, he challenged their authority, 
and threatened their religion and power. Put simply, he performed miracles they could not. He proclaimed truth they did not. He was from God, and they were not. A few key thoughts for us, maybe some principles we can apply. You know, sometimes we look at these historical narratives, and we, we do need to see what it is, how does it apply to my life? I mean, I'm intrigued by the story, but what, do I, what kind of big picture thing can I take out of this to apply to my walk? Well, one thing is that when the truth is known, it should be proclaimed and not compromised. And that's, that's, that can be very difficult. But the reason why that when the truth is known, it should be proclaimed, and I'm not talking about gossip. I'm not do, talking about doing things that are wrong and revealing, you know, out of context, if you will. But when the truth about a subject is known in the public domain, it should be proclaimed and not compromised. And now today we have uh, such a, it's almost seemingly impossible to find the truth anywhere because so many things are put out there in the social media realm and on the news. So many truth claims, if you will. And so much compromise and so much cover up. But what it does, if you're a Christian and you compromise on the truth and when you don't proclaim the truth, it weakens our character and our witness for Jesus. So think about that. The other thing that Pilate, he thought he could play politics, but it bit him. And we need to be careful with that. You know, we can try to play politics on many levels. Finally, we have Pilate's verdict in verses 11 through 15. It says, Then the chief priest stirred up the crowd so they should rather release Barabbas to them. Again, we said, you know, he was going to present Jesus. He's going to say, who do you want me to release? And they're going to choose the, this wicked criminal over the sinless son of God. And they did it because the chief priest stirred up the crowd. Notice in Luke 23, 18, and they cried all at once, saying, Away with this man and release us to us, Barabbas. Matthew 27, 20, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. That's how it went down. That's how it happened right there. Pilate was seeing their utter hatred for Jesus right before his eyes. And when you think about it, the world in general, the Christ-rejecting world that we are sent to love and witness to, will always cry out against Jesus in order to get rid of him. And you, you know that. Everything is fine until you bring him into the conversation. Everything is fine until you reveal uh, the truth of the scripture, that there is a, uh, you know, God ha wants to control our behavior. He wants us to worship him. And when we present that to a, a world who is not, you know, there are many who are hungry for Jesus. That's why he sends us among them. But there are also many who are rejecting. And that's what they were doing here. John 15, 18, Jesus' words were this. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, Pilate believed that he could still save the situation by giving the people the choice between Jesus and Barabbas. He felt that no people could be so depraved as to ask for such an outcast of society. But lo and behold. So in verse 12, Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him? 
whom you call the king of the Jews. He wasn't ready to lay it down. He wasn't ready to put it to rest. The Romans would never call anybody king but Caesar. So he said, you, you know, you called the king of the Jews. Again, he's kind of getting them angry. But then they, verse 13, they cried out to him again, crucify him. Now there's a reason why the gospel, you see in the Bible, you see the words, you know, things like crucify, and it doesn't go into very detail, great detail. Not as much as, as uh, it could, it could have. And the reason for that is because people in that day knew exactly what crucifixion was. Staruo. It's to drive down in stakes. I'm not going to go through it all. We'll save that uh, for the, another message perhaps next week. But they don't need to go into minute detail for the readers of that day because they knew full well. It would be like you know sending somebody to an electric chair. Most of you know how gruesome that could be. And I don't have to explain it. In verse 14, Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. He's trying to get Jesus released, but they won't relent. So Pilate, verse 15, wanting to gratify the crowd, he finally caves in. He released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus, and he had him scourged to be crucified. Upside down. Upside down. A total travesty. They, they were able to carry out their judicial murder through the hand of Pilate. They release a known criminal, and they send a man who is sinless to die. Matthew 27, 24, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Now you need to know, if you don't already, uh, and you need to be wise about this because there are people who are anti-Semitic, okay, no, no kidding, right? They will use passages like this against Jewish people. They will say, the Jews, see, the Jews, they're the evil, they killed Jesus. I mean, even Martin Luther lost his mind at the end of his life and said some horrific things about the Jews. So be mindful because, you know, if you're a person of the Bible, people will want to engage with you perhaps and they may want to attack you based on what the Bible says and they may want to try to say, look, the Jews hated Jesus. They even asked that his blood would be on us and on our children. But remember when he was laying on the cross, he said, forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they do. They didn't know what they were asking. And you can look at that and turn it around and say, well, I'm glad that the blood of Jesus is upon me because I couldn't stand before God the Father. That's just sort of a side note. Just keep in mind because anti-Semitism we hear a lot more these days is on the rise. And don't allow people to use the scriptures to do it. The Nazis did. He sent Jesus and delivered to him to be scourged Again, they would understand what this meant. 
We, what does that mean, scourged? Well, that's, uh, it was a savage and excruciating punishment. This whip was a fregaello. Fregaello, I'm probably not pronouncing it right. It was made of leather straps that had two small balls attached to the end of each strap. The balls were made of rough lead or sharp bones or spikes so that they would cut deeply into the flesh. His hands were tied to a post above his head and he was scourged. It was the custom for the prisoner to be lashed until he was judged near death by the presiding centurion. Jewish trials allowed for only 40 lashes. The criminal's back was, of course, nothing more than an unrecognizable mass of torn flesh. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Next week we'll look at Jesus' crucifixion. But at the end of this chapter, at the end of this segment, we just see, at the end you look at Pilate, you know, we know Jesus, we know the end of the story, we know that he overcame death, that he died on our behalf, we have the good news to share with the world. But then you think of Pilate, and he just became another wavering politician, walking in down the lanes of history. The lesson for us is, even though God was in charge and this was God's call, we still have a lesson to be learned from this. And that when leaders compromise their character, they're often forced to appease the people in their charge. Bribery, coercion, backroom deals are very common. Remember what we said last week. The level of corruption in our country right now is the likes nobody's ever seen before from the, from the mouth of a convicted organized crime member who knew about corruption. And he said he's never seen it to the level that he sees it in our time right now. Finally, what do you do if you are, let's say, a victim of personal injustice? And I'm not talking about putting on being a victim because that's a dangerous thing. There's ways that people can make themselves victims in just about any circumstance. But what if you're truly like Jesus on the opposite end of injustice? What do you do with that? Well, like Jesus, you may have to let go of any expectation of justice. And that's difficult in our society because we have the Bill of Rights in our Constitution. We know what is available to us. Jesus accepted that he would not receive justice under the present world system. In fact, that's why he came to establish the kingdom of God, writes Chuck Swindoll. So he didn't seek the affirmation of people and he didn't look to the courts for justice. So no matter what it is, whether it's you know, just an issue between a friend or loved one, uh, somebody that wants you to please them, and you, be, you feel like you're in a position of being a people pleaser, remember Paul would say, I, I appreciate what you think of me. I think it's 1 Corinthians 4. But I want to pre- please Jesus most of all before I please you. And so don't expect justice from the world. He spoke, Jesus spoke truth without fear. He avoided the distractions of anger and bitterness. And he submitted to the will of the Father. And he entrusted himself to the one who would judge every soul. So we have an out 
But it's, you know, it's often in, in meekness. You know, it hurts to say, I'm sorry for how I behaved. Second, stop trying to be heard. <laughs> this is hard, isn't it? Stop trying to be heard. The more you try to make your side of the story known, the less credible you and I are going to appear sometimes. And set aside any hope of vindication in this world. Let God decide when, where, and how he will set the record straight. In the meantime, speak the truth in love and without apology. Speak truthfully and honorably to anyone who cares enough to listen. Wait upon God and submit to his sovereign will. And then keep pressing on. Amen? Father, we thank you for our time today. We thank you for your word. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing to know that you love us so much to bring these things forth to us, these spiritual truths, and to remind us once again, Lord, of your great love and sacrifice on our behalf. And why we can celebrate, Lord, because of the work that you did, because you suffered in our place. So thank you, Lord. Let us share the good news of Jesus with everyone we come into contact with this week, Lord God. Go before us, I pray and ask. By your precious name, in Jesus I pray, and all God's people said, Amen. You guys have a wonderful week. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.